You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with you today. Thankful to be here. We do want to continue to lift up uh, Jason as he preaches at Christ Church. Um, Today we will be in Acts chapter 6. Um, and if you're borrowing a Bible from the pew in front of you, or the, the chair, pew Bible, you, it's uh, page 914. Um, as Jason, um, as the Jasons, and I sat down and we were thinking about the schedule, um, my turn came up and it was going to be chapter 6, 8 through chapter 7, verse 60. And I said, oh Lord, our dear people, um, but we'll get out of here on time, and you'll be able to eat something at 4 o'clock, okay? So we're going to dive right in. Last week, um, well, throughout our study in Acts, we've seen how God establishes, builds, provides for, and sends his church. Last week, Pastor Redberg showed how the Lord always provides exactly what the church needs in the midst of a problem related to growth. The church was growing, bursting at the seams, and they needed help. They needed servants to, be, to step up and, and help the people. In the midst of a problem related to growth, God provided servants for his church, deacons. And when this happened, Luke tells us in chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God is always in the business of priding, uh, providing above and beyond what we ask or think, beyond our expectations. The book of Ephesians would echo this sentiment. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God always provides what, what the church needs, what his people need. In Luke's gospel, the prequel to the book of Acts, Jesus says the following words to his disciples in Luke 21, verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Today we turn our attention to Stephen, one of those men chosen to serve. In Stephen we find a man captivated with Jesus. Stephen was a man on fire. He was a man on fire, lit aflame by his faith in Jesus Christ and used mightily by the Holy Spirit to bring Christ Jesus glory. But he dies. He's martyred. And surely as the church's opponents snuff out his life, the church itself, this this growing community will be snuffed out as well. And the boldness of her people would be extinguished. But no, the opposite happens. As we've seen in Acts thus far, even when trials, suffering, persecution come, when the world would say, it's over, it's done with, 
God reveals his glory and the word of God goes forth and people are made to come and repent to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church grows. God grows the church in all the ways that the world would say it's dead, but God makes it alive because every time God speaks a word, it's alive. Amen? With the martyrdom of martyrdom of Stephen. We'll see that if Jesus Christ is our treasure, then with great joy, we will give our lives as a bold witness to the gospel. If Jesus Christ is our treasure, then with great joy, we will give our lives as a bold witness to the gospel. Stephen faced opposition. We're introduced to Stephen in the preceding section. The apostle, um, the apostles instructed the, the crowd to to find men who had a good reputation, who were full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, among these men was Stephen. And Luke specifically gives us the clear picture that Stephen met the qualifications the apostles required. In chapter 6, verse 5, he says, um, and what they said, pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. And then there's a comma, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Luke um, testifies to this as he moves into chapter 6 verse 8 he says that it's Stephen full of grace and power Stephen was full of grace and power and let's read chapter 6 verse 8 through 15 and Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called and the Cyrenaeans and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemy, uh, blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen was full of grace and power, Luke says. He was full of grace. He, he knew Jesus. He was a recipient of grace. And as a recipient of grace, when we're recipients of grace, guess what happens? That grace overflows and it pours out on others. All could attest that Stephen was a gracious man. And Stephen was full of power. He was a man submitted to the Holy Spirit in obedience to following Christ, submitted to the Holy Spirit's power in his life. Luke describes the great signs and wonders he was doing among the people. Not only does he do great signs and wonders, but as we'll see, he preaches with boldness because he's on fire. He's on fire for his king. Yeah, we know that with the proclamation of Jesus and ministry in his name, we'll often face opposition. We'll face opposition. And Stephen does from the synagogue of the freedmen. And the synagogue of the freedmen is, is a group, and the Greek is really complex here, and so you have many Greek scholars arguing about what, what it means. Is it five synagogues? Is it two synagogues? Is it one synagogue made up of all those people from Cilicia and Alexandria and Asia and, and Cyrenia. Um, it, we'll let them sort that out. The big thing you need to know is that they were called freedmen. General Pompey in 63 BC came in 
and they took a lot of uh, Judeans captive, a lot of Jews captive. And over, this, over the time, these captives were freed, and their, their ancestors were freed and released. And they had the opportunity, if their captors had been Roman citizens, if their masters had been Roman citizens, um, to become adopted into those households. And so this was a gathering of people called freedmen. But as we'll see, even though they might have the status, their unbelief kept them enslaved. This group disputed with Stephen. Luke specifically does not tell us what the teaching Stephen was, was saying. He doesn't give us all the specifics. We're going to hear what Stephen says in a much bigger way in a moment. But it's likely it all came back to Jesus being the Messiah. That's what disciples of Christ do. They preach about who Jesus is, that he's God, come to rescue sinners. In verse 10, it says, But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So what do people do? What do we do when we can't withstand the truth and the truth threatens our treasure? Well, people lie. People lie to benefit themselves and get rid of what threatens their treasure. Stephen's opponents secretly instigated men. In verse 11, they found some guys to lie, accusing Stephen of, of what? Of speaking blasphemy against Moses and God. And lies reveal a lot. Lies reveal a lot, don't they? Lies reveal what we often love. Verse 12 tells us that they stirred up everybody. They stirred up everybody. They seized Stephen and arrested him and took him before the council. And, and again, Stephen's opponents set the trap by supplying more false witnesses before the council. In verse 13, it says, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, talking about the temple and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs. The, the Greek word there is ethos. He'll change our ethos. You ever heard that word? In, in leadership circles now, they, they want to, in companies, they want to create an ethos. You know, I had a church planting conversation one time, and someone said, What, what, what ethos do you want to have? What ethos do you want to have for your, your church? And I was like, um, well, a biblical one? Stephen's going to mess up our ethos. The customs handed down by Moses. What does the lie reveal? Treasure. They, they, claim, no, they said this man never ceases to speak words against the temple, the law, the accusations in 11 and 13 have several nuances. And they, the claim was Stephen was speaking blasphemy. Now, we know that God's word had defined blasphemy a certain way. Back in Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the, Lord, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And according to his opponents, the, the synagogue men, from, uh, uh, freed men, Stephen was threatening the temple and the law. Evidently, the scope of blasphemy had gotten larger. At this time in history, it was due to large part how Jewish culture, the religious elite, understood both the law and Moses, uh, the law of Moses and the temple itself. They equated both with God. They equated it with God. The temple is ours. Our identity, our nationalistic identity is tied up with the temple. The law of Moses that we've received, God showed his favor on us and gave our people the law and gave 
are people the temple. So identity and, and, and spiritual pride and elitism all intertwine to make this heart of unbelief and rejection. The men said, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, that was meant as a derogatory term. Jesus of Nazareth. This, this Jesus. And when it came to the temple, now Jesus had said some things about the temple. Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now Jesus had spoken of the temple's destruction in Mark 13, 1 and 2. It says, and as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And even what Jesus said had, was twisted and used against him in his trial, Mark 14, 57 and 58. And someone stood up and bore false witness, false witness against him saying, we heard him say, talking about Jesus, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands in three days. I will build another not made with hands. In the Gospel of John, when he specifically used the words, destroy this temple, John 2 says, so the Jews said to him, what? What sign do you show us for doing these things? He had just cleansed the temple of all the merchants. And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has, been, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Had Stephen's debate with the, the men from the Freedmen's Synagogue been such a thoroughgoing Christology that he unfolded how Jesus in his exaltation replaces the temple. Or how Christ came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. We, we don't know specifically. Luke doesn't give us information. But we can assume Stephen was preaching Christ and was faithful to the Lord's teaching, which is what Christ's disciples do. And with the charges mounted, the council fixed their eyes on Stephen. In verse 15 it says, "...and gazing at him..." All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, they're probably not referring to um, the cherub faces you're going to see on the Valentine's Day decorations. Nor are they referring to faces like many of the wonderful babies here at Redeemer. And there's a lot of them. And every one of them has a cherub angelic face. I think so. And so do their mommies and daddies and their grandparents, right? He's not talking about that. Amen. Someone said, right. That's right. That's right. Sweet baby faces. I love babies. We love babies. And there's more coming. Praise the Lord. But what commentators do is they, they link Stephen's angelic face to that of Moses. Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Moses had been in the presence of God and God's glory, right? God's glory, when you're in his presence, it shows. Now Stephen is going to give an answer. When the council saw this man, they saw a man who, like Moses, was in the presence of God and the radiance of his face revealed that Stephen was a man who knew God and burned with love for him. 
No. Acts chapter 7, Steve's, Stephen's going to give an answer. I imagine in, in my mind, as I imagine chapter 6 and 7, I imagine that, that they're looking at this guy with his angelic face and there's this long, audible silence, right? And then, then the high priest comes out of the trance. He's like, well, um, are these things so? And Stephen said, verse 2, brothers and fathers, hear me. I love Stephen here. What, what, um, he knows who he's talking to, Right? He's talking to people who have a noble reputation. He's, even though he disagrees with them, he still gives them respect, right? That grace flowing out from him, right? Brothers and fathers. He's talking to the priests and the religious elite, so he gives deference to them. Now, there are two themes that Stephen's going to weave through chapter 7, through his message in response to them. Um, and he's going to use from the scriptures this overview of redemptive history. Now, there's two themes that are God's presence in the temple. That's one theme. Another is the rejection of God by Israel. And he's going to weave these together and let the scriptures speak um, over and over again. And he uses that to show that he's not speaking against Moses nor the law given by Moses. And he not, he's not speaking against the temple. He's not speaking blasphemy against the temple, but he is actually, what they don't understand is that he's actually saying that the temple doesn't matter. The temple doesn't matter. And, and, and he's not going to say, you've rejected Jesus the whole time. You've turned away from God. Stephen provides this overview starting with Abraham. He lays out Abraham's story. He said God met him in, in Mesopotamia and called him to land that he would show him. Right? And Moses responded in faith. And then God gave Moses the covenant promises and gave him the mark of the covenant, circumcision. Abraham came to J Judea, Stephen said in verse 4. He, yet he was a sojourner. He, had, he didn't have any inheritance in the land that you're now standing in but he had faith in God. And God established his covenant with him. And from Abraham, Stephen moves to Joseph in verse 9. And with Joseph, he says, listen, even at the beginning, the patriarchs rejected Joseph, who is this dreamer, they had said. They rejected their brother Joseph and sold him into slavery. And Joseph ends up in Egypt. But the scripture says God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph in Egypt, and God gave Joseph wisdom and, and knowledge and power and made him a, a ruler in Egypt so that he could save the people of Egypt from a famine along with the patriarchs who Israel sent down to get food because they were starving. So God used the one rejected by the patriarchs to save them. And then the patriarchs, they end up living and residing in Egypt and Stephen moves in verse 17 to Moses. And here, the centerpiece. You know, because they had said, this man's speaking against Moses. So now he goes to the centerpiece and says, let me unfold what the scriptures say about Moses. So he started with how the people of Israel grew and how a new Pharaoh came who didn't know Joseph. Because the Hebrews kept multiplying, the, the Pharaoh sought to kill the male children, but God was present with Moses. Where was Moses? He was in Egypt. But God was present there. In verse 20, Stephen explains that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. God saved Moses, and rather than allowing Moses to perish, God rescued him by purposing it. Just so amazing the way God purposes his, his will and his plan. He purposes it so that Pharaoh's daughter 
would find him and adopt him and raise Moses as their own. And Moses was then instructed in all the ways of Egypt. At verse 23, Stephen begins to present the ministry of Moses in, in three 40-year increments. The first, when it came to Moses' um, heart, it came into Moses' heart that he's going to go visit his brothers, the Hebrew people. And then he found this Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. And so he sought to rescue his, his uh, Hebrew brother, and he steps in and kills the Egyptian. And verse 25 says that, that um, he stepped, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his, hand, by his hand, but they did not understand. They didn't understand. Stephen recounts the, the scripture's narrative. The next day, Moses goes out and he finds two Hebrew guys and they're fighting with each other. And he steps in and says, hey, hey, what are y'all doing? Y'all are brothers. And one of the Hebrews, the guy starting the quarrel, pushes him aside and says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses cut. He flees. He flees to Midian. In verse 30, the next section of Moses' career that Stephen is, is unpacking for the crowd. While in Midian, God reveals himself to Moses in the flame of fire in the bush. In verse 32, he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. It's here that Stephen reminds his audience of what God implies about himself. Wherever God's presence is, is holy ground. Where were they? They're in Midian. There was holy ground in Midian because that's where God's presence was revealed to Moses. Verse 35. Moses moves to, to Moses and how God uses him. The guy they rejected... God uses the guy they rejected to save them. He was the guy that led them out. In verse 36, this man led them out, performing signs and wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. And Stephen makes this deliberate link between Christ and Moses here. Quoting Deuteronomy 18.15, in verse 37, Moses had told the people he would send another. There'd be another prophet sent, like me, to rescue the people. And we had already seen that Peter had used this same passage in 322. He used it in the temple court. He said, Christ is the one Moses was talking about. Jesus is the one who Moses was talking about. And Peter said, repent. The Christian community understood that, that the prophet that Moses was talking about was Jesus who had come. Stephen continues to show how the scriptures provide a different understanding by pointing to the themes of rejection and the temple. In verse 38, it says, Our fathers refused to, um, excuse me, verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. In verse 38, Stephen says there's a specific reference here to the law of Moses received, and, and then he uses the word ecclesia, which um, in the ESV, it's translated congregation, ecclesia. It's where we get our word church, ecclesiology. Now see, the congregation in the wilderness is linked to Moses, who then is 
has told them there's a prophet coming like him, and he moves to Jesus who has brought together another people of God, a church around himself. This congregation is sitting around Christ whose throne is in heaven. This new people of the covenant, this new group of people, this church. There's no place on earth. There's no mountain. There's no Sinai. That's the focus. There's no temple or building. There's no churches or theological books. God, Jesus, is enthroned in heaven, and we are gathered around him, right? And the Holy Spirit has been sent, and the Shekinah glory of the flaming fire tongue now burns with all of us. Verse 39, he shows how Israel turned away from God. They turned away. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And what they do? They made a calf. Exodus 32, 21 through 25, there's this heartbreaking story. Moses comes to Aaron and said, what have, you, what have you done? And he's like, well, I took all the gold and I threw it in the fire and then out popped this calf. And we laugh at that, but our hearts do the same thing. And Stephen's trying to say, we've rejected. Israel has rejected God since the wilderness and chosen idolatry. Since the Exodus, Israel has consistently chosen the idolatry. They, they worship the calf when God had let them out. They immediately go and make a calf. Verse 44, Stephen moves from Moses and highlights the, the tent of the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting. It's, it's, it's a place of pilgrim worship. God has, has his presence there, and the God's presence was on the move. His, his presence was with the people before they even came into the land of promise. Joshua brought it over, and they had the tent all the way until David. And then David's son finally determined to, to build a temple. But even Solomon... But even Solomon knew that the Lord's presence would not be housed in a temple. And at the dedication of the temple, Solomon said this in 1 Kings. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And Stephen understood that God's presence is not equated with one location, one temple. Verse 48, Stephen said, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did I not make all these things? Stephen understood that God's presence is not equated with one location. Certainly not the temple. And then, Quoting the scriptures, quoting the Psalms, he points out what God reveals about himself. I made all these things. God is transcendent. But yet when he sends his emissaries to make his present 
imminent. The people have consistently rejected them. Now Stephen goes to this crushing blow. Israel consistently rejected the people God sent to rescue them. In verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you now have betrayed and murdered. Talking about Jesus. You have received the law as delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. Stiff-necked. One of the things God repeatedly said about the people of Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness is that they were stiff-necked. You know, when you're stubborn, no, I'm looking forward. I'm not looking at you. I'm looking forward. Stiff-necked, and they were uncircumcised and hardened and ears. They might have had the physical mark that said they were God's people, but their hearts were far from him. And the climax of Stephen's message is indicting application. Jesus had told his disciples that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you and he will guide you into all truth. And yet these people had consistently, I can't even say that word today, consistently refused to hear the truth because their hearts treasured what the temple gave them. An economy, law, commands that they could keep and interpret the way they wanted to, prestige, religious elitism, all these are better equated with pride and spiritual blindness. And verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Heart of rejection. But he, Stephen, Full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen casts his eyes to his treasure. He casts his eyes to him whom his heart longed for. The Son of Man was that title that Jesus often used for himself, uh, linking back to Daniel 7. We know at the end of Mark's gospel that as soon as he said Son of Man, that's when the high priest was, was enraged and he said, what more do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. Because they had understood that the Son of Man equaled God, equaled deity. And Jesus was there at God's right hand. God, being at God's right hand, he provides us more intimate, satisfying, fulfilling, complete access to God that's open to us. Far more than the temple could ever provide. The fact that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God in Stephen's beautiful vision, um, some have said it demonstrated that the Lord was Receiving the first martyr, welcoming him into the presence. Um, a lot of commentators say more specifically, here the Son of Man stands ready to judge those who deny him. 
Isaiah 3.13 says the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. With hearts of rejection, the crowd responded. Verse 57. But they cried out with loud voice and, and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a man named Saul. They stopped their ears. They, they didn't stop their ears because they were throwing a tantrum, right? Has that ever happened to you? You're trying to say something to some little person, and they're like, la, 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 la. You better listen to me. No, they're not throwing a tantrum. As soon as he said, son of man, they had to stop their ears and yell so they couldn't hear it because what they believed was that Stephen was lying, that this Jesus, this Nazarene, that he's not, the, he's not the God we know. He's not God. And so we refuse to listen. No, 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 no. And they rushed at him and they seized him. They took him outside and they began to stone him. And it was an immediate execution for blasphemy. Verse 59, and, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen, Stephen died. What is, what is Stephen's witness and his martyrdom, what's it teach us? What are the implications and applications for us? I mean, obviously, we can make a direct leap. You know, when Christ says in Acts 1.8, he says, and the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon you, you're going to receive power, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my martyrs. Witnesses. It's a Greek word, martus, which is where we get our Word martyr. Jesus said, You will be my martyrs. First, it may help to consider the young man who is a coat bearer. He's introduced Saul, who will later become Paul. He'll later take up so much of the New Testament, starting in Luke's gospel. Luke is his close companion in ministry for much of it. You know they talked about this. They had to, right? Luke, we know that Luke's a journalist. He's not only a physician, but he's a journalist. And he took record of all the eyewitness accounts. And he told Theophilus, I've been meticulous to take these things down so that you'll have a witness to what Jesus has done and what he continued to do in his church. You know that Luke and Paul talked about Stephen. You can look up Acts 22.20. Paul brings it up as he's talking to the Lord. He says, Lord, and when the blood of Stephen was being poured out, I was there with the coats approving what was happening. The man, Saul, who approved Stephen's death is the same man who became Paul, who would also give his life as a bold witness for Christ. To the church of Philippi, he wrote these words, Philippians 1.21. I want this on my grave. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. 
I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Jesus. For that is far better. Where does this story leave you? How does it land on you? The story of Stephen. Our thesis, the one that I had said, was that if Jesus Christ is our treasure, then with great joy we will give our lives as bold witnesses of the gospel. We will be bold witnesses for the gospel. If Christ is our treasure. Now, Stephen's a powerful and moving, moving figure, right? We hold him up and say, like Stephen, the first martyr. The value of Jesus is so intimately displayed. He was a man whose treasure was Christ, and that treasure burned from the inside out. You know, what I'm going to ask you now is a thought that's bounced around in my soul the last couple of weeks. Do you burn like this? You can ask that. Do you burn like this? Do you burn like this? What is it in your life that cultivates joy? What is it in your life that cultivates this burning desire to make uh, bold claims and proclamation about? What are you a bold witness for? People are always bold witnesses for what they worship. Our, Our kids, our grandkids, our jobs, our cars, our phones, Apple or Android, right? Our bodies, our movies, our diets, our crossfitting, our hobbies. Often we don't even realize what we burn for the most. We'd have to line up our spouses and our friends and our family. What's he always talking about? What's she always talking about? We, we would say, yeah, we burn for Christ, but yet everybody around us would say, well, you really burn for like golf or Nintendo or the Vikings or those Packer people, right? People raise their voices and they get passionate about stuff that's going to be burnt up. Isn't that astounding? And so, so often, like, we even, we're even going back to the calf and we're saying, hey, make me feel better about me. And, I, and I'm wrestling through this. I'm wrestling through this in so many different areas, and you can pray for me because I, I want to burn like this. When I first became a believer, one of the things that the Lord used um, outside of the Bible's testimony and its proclamation by Brother Bob Norman who's with Jesus right now. Outside that, he used the stories of all the people that gladly gave their lives for the gospel. Like countless stories. People who are willing to go to death. People who are willing to be boiled in oil. People who are willing to be fed by lions because they just wouldn't say, no, I'm just kidding. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't want to get eaten. They didn't do that because they believed that Jesus was better that he was far greater, and that his love was transforming. I couldn't believe it. All these people who died with the name Christ on their tongue. And 
I wanted that. I, I discovered that this, I, I wanted to love someone like that. I wanted I want something so big and majestic that everything else didn't matter. And then I discovered that that someone loved me more fully and completely than ever, than I could ever possibly dream this person loved me. And my young Christian heart was overwhelmed. I, I wanted to be like the martyrs. I wanted to be like that. And I still want to be like that. Don't you? Don't you want to love that burns for Jesus so boldly that everything else in this God-forsaken world doesn't even matter to you? Because he's rescuing you out of it. So what small problems do you have? Your God is bigger. Your God is far bigger. And if you don't believe that, then there's some things you need to be praying this afternoon. Christ is worth it. And I know for some of you, the power of the gospel beats in you. And then right now, some, some of you are feeling the pounding and beating of the gospel right now. And so I beg you, repent. Turn to him and be free. Because we can be free and full of joy. If you believe that, say amen. 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 This world needs a Christian witness that's bold. It doesn't need us just showing up here on Sundays. Your relationship with God, it's not relegated to any temple, this thing in Minnetonka. We're the people of God, right? When the Holy Spirit was sent at Pentecost, the flaming tongues of fire, everybody's like, oh, that's, that's the languages. Yes, God gave them languages. But you know what's significant about that? That Shekinah glory that burned above the mercy seat, the presence of God as it traveled with them through the wilderness, that Holy Spirit is a burning fire and available to you because now God takes residence with his people through their faith in Christ Jesus. And Jesus says, you can be bold. You can be bold. Now, I rarely quote this man, but I'm going to say this man was so pivotal in my understanding of God and my love for him when I was younger. John Piper, he challenges us with this. He says, what the world is waiting to see and what, what might awaken a sense of Christ's value is something radical, some risk, some crazy sacrifice, some extraordinary love, something salty and bright. They may not like it when they see it, They may crucify it, but they won't be bored. Stephen's face shone like an angel. His wisdom was irresistible, so they killed him. But they did not yawn, and they did not go to sleep. Oh, Father, use this people boldly. Use us boldly, Lord. We need your presence to burn within us. Because there are people in the world that are perishing who don't know the gospel. And so, Lord, I I pray even today, would, would your Holy Spirit just work in the hearts of my brothers and sisters? And would they make commitments to give themselves fully to the gospel ministry that you've prepared for them? Whether it be in nurseries here or in the neighborhoods where they live with teenagers here with co-workers, with Muslims, with Hindus, 
with refugees that need a place to live, with children who have no home. Lord, would you give us, your people, whom you've purchased by the blood of your Son, would you give us a boldness to pour out our lives for the gospel? And all God's people said, Amen.